Hello and welcome to the MedReach podcast. This is episode one of what will be a three-part series on ENT emergencies. I got the opportunity to sit down with Mr. Jerry McGarry and there was so much good stuff within the interview that we've decided to split it into three episodes. So this is episode number one. So today we've got a very special guest, Jerry McGarry, um, who is an ENT surgeon, and he's very kindly agreed to come and chat to us about uh, some topics that hopefully have interest to emergency physicians and how we can deal with certain ENT emergencies. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. McGarry, for joining me today. Would you like to tell us what your specialty is in ENT? Yeah, well, I, I'm an ENT surgeon. I'm a head and neck surgeon, but I'm super specialised in uh, a specialty known as endoscopic skull-based surgery. Um, so I deal with uh, excision of sinonasal tumours, uh, and I'm involved in, in the development of uh, what is, in fact, a new specialty, rhino neurosurgery, where we do uh, intracranial things through a transnasal approach. So quite Probably stuff that doesn't have particular interest or, or value to us in emergency. Is anything that you well, do there, that... There are one or two things which I think uh, would overlap into your, your sphere. One of the things I do is... Uh, repair CSF leaks and things like that, which you'll okay. encounter from skull base fractures uh, from time to time. So, And what's the latest kind of developments in that area? Well, the latest developments in, in uh, CSF leaks are all around endoscopic repair. Now, traditionally in the past, when people uh, leaked a CSF down their nose, uh, the neurosurgeons would uh, uh, do a, a craniotomy, lift up their brain, put in a patch and flop it back down again, and, and they wouldn't leak CSF, but they would have problems like anosmia, and uh, epilepsy and all these things were complications of that approach. Now we go transnasally with telescopes, minimal access, find a leak, and we use um, flaps which are based on the nasal arteries to repair the skull base with a very high rate of success and without any of the major morbidities that come with the old older ways of doing it. And how quickly does that need to be done or how soon do you like to do that? Well, that's a good question. Um, the... People who are leaking CSF, um, and maybe we should, we should take a step back and, and, and say that, you know, if any of your uh, A&E uh, uh, specialists encounter somebody with unilateral watery rhinorrhea, if they've got gin coming out their nose, it's CSF until proved otherwise. In fact, any unilateral nasal discharge uh, really needs to see ENT. Um, so if you've got gin coming out your nose, you've got CSF leak, um, the risk, of course, is that you're at a higher risk of meningitis. And although it's difficult to know exactly what that risk is, it's probably quite low. Probably about 1% per annum of people with CSF leaks will, will get uh, meningitis. But of course, you could just be unlucky and, and get it. Uh, uh, you could be that 1%. So when we diagnose it, which we now do using a, a specialised test, we send the fluid off for beta-2 transferrin or beta-trace protein or tau protein analysis. It's all uh, different names for the same sort of test. And that will come back and tell us that it is CSF. And once we have that diagnosis, then we really try and close it pretty quickly uh, to reduce the risk of meningitis. Now, would we refer to you, I mean, our typical pathway would be with that type of patient referred to neurosurgery, and would they involve you, or could it be something that we could even uh, kind of well, co-involve you yeah. as well as a neurosurgeon? Well, it's so much so that neurosurgery now refer their surgically created leaks to us. So uh, I don't think the neurosurgeons would object to you cutting out the middleman. Um, just, I think uh, if you have someone who you think has got CSF, rhinorrhea, refer it 
to an endoscopic uh, ENT surgeon. So we were probably going to sp- try and speak to you more about some of the some less specialised stuff, if yeah. that's okay. Some of the things that are a bit more common yeah. for us. Um, so if you don't mind, if you can humour me for a wee bit, I was going to bring you on shift with me. I can't imagine why you would be on shift with me in any. No, it's a long but, time since I've been in <laughs> But we're going to invite you on shift. So you and I are going to go around and see a, a series of patients. And I was just interested to find out maybe how you would deal with those patients to see with your experience and expertise and um, what you would do and how that might inform what we do. Um, so the first and probably most common one, um, of course, is epistaxis. So we'll just say we have a 50-year-old gentleman, no particular past medical history, no significant history of epistaxis, but comes in with quite a significant bleed, which he's been trying to, to perform first aid on at home unsuccessfully. So we come to see the patient. I was just wondering what your first steps or your first approach generally would be to an epistaxis patient okay so uh, believe it or not epistaxis is one of my major hobbies and uh, i did my md thesis on uh, uh, endoscopic management of severe epistaxis and so you'd I, get your endoscope out straight I, I away written loads <laughs> and you don't need the endoscope <laughs> and, and uh, so uh, the patient you described, first of all, is a 50-year-old male, and, and that's bang on for arterial epistaxis. That's the, the, the characteristic patient that we see. It's commoner in males. It's commoner uh, with advancing age. Um, so it's ABC. Again, essentially, you're resuscitating any bleeding patient. And uh, epistaxis, as you and I both know, can be anything from a minor trickle to a horrific life-threatening bleed and we do see these major bleeds from time to time. You said he hadn't managed to sort it with first aid but that doesn't stop um, the accident emergency department doctor doing first aid and so the first thing to do in a situation like that is what's called a Hippocratic technique to try and stop the bleeding. So the Hippocratic technique uh, involves pinching the soft part of the nose, the ala nasi and this is based on the fact that probably about 90% of all nosebleeds come from the anterior inferior part of the nasal septum, you know, previously known as Little's area or whatever. So with every bleed, your aim is to initially put direct pressure over the bleed. So if you press the soft bits of the nose below the nasal bones, right at the very tip of the nose, and compress them against the septum, then you've got a 9 out of 10 chance that you're putting direct pressure on the bleeding vessel itself. What we found was that this uh, technique was incorrectly applied. People would pinch over the nasal bones. Um, I was going to ask you though, why, why do you think people do that? We still see so many people from the public coming in pinching the bony part of the nose. What, what, why do you think that is and what, what could we do, I don't know, to educate people better? Well, I think this is it's just one of these things that's got passed down. It's a, a bit of an urban myth and that's where you press. Um, so other than just making sure that whenever you you have a patient with a nosebleed that you you demonstrate it to them and tell them what to do and make sure all your staff around you uh, do it. I see it. I still see it. I see see nursing staff. I see other medical staff doing it. Um, And I don't know. It's it's crept into the the zeitgeist. I don't know how you get rid of it. (laughs) Other than just continually. A big public awareness campaign or something. I don't know. Um, So the first thing is to do that. What's the minimum length of time you would advise? Well, I, I would tell people to sit up um, uh, for, for about 10 minutes pressing uh, with their thumb and their finger like that and, and just sit up straight, breathe through your mouth and press on it. Um, why, why do I say 10 minutes? I, I don't like to, I've just 
talked about an urban myth. I don't like to just pick numbers out of the air. The reason I say that is because the the normal bleeding time for hemostasis, the mean bleeding time is about seven minutes. So you want to be overshoot a wee bit on that. So 10 minutes is a long time. Sit with a watch or a clock and make sure that you do it for 10 minutes before you let the pressure off. And, and I would think that in a very large percentage of our patients, that would do the, do the job. In a good going posterior bleed, of course, the patient's still going to be bleeding despite you doing that. But um, as I said, probably about 90% of the time you'll, you'll, you'll get a result. So let's say we, we advise the patient and he does that, but it doesn't stop just yeah. for the purpose of yeah. this podcast. So what, what, what's your kind of general next step? Okay. So um, the, the next thing is to, to assess just how, how much bleeding is going on there. And um, in all but the, the most minor of bleeds, the patient's going to need IV access and all these things that you accident emergency team are, are so good at doing. Um, if you can get some sort of illumination, we use headlights in ENT, but any good torch. Um, you don't always have speculae or things that you can dilate the nostril with in, in accident emergency, but you can try and hold the nostril open and shine the torch in and see if you can see where the bleeding's coming from. If you can see where it's coming from, then you that's that's 90% of the battle. You can then put something on that area to try and slow it down and go back to pinching the nostril. Anything particularly you, you would put on? Any any advantage of adrenaline versus tranexamic acid or any of those? Yeah. Any any developments there? Um, so so let, let's roll back a wee bit because you, you've mentioned tranexamic acid uh, and adrenaline. If you can put a vasoconstrictor on the area, uh, uh, then that's probably a good idea to do that. And the way I would recommend doing that is with a, a big piece of cotton wool, um, cotton wool ball, not a wee bit. Don't put wee things up people's noses, but a good cotton wool ball, maybe half a, a cotton wool ball, and soak it. And, and we would use something like uh, oxymetazoline, otrovin spray, ephedrine spray, something like that. Even cofenocaine, which you might have in the department for for doing you know, endoscopies and so on, uh, this is a vasoconstrictor. Soak the wool on that, pop it in the bleeding nostril, and get them to to, to press with the Hippocratic technique on top and see if that stops it. So another ten minutes. Uh, I'm not a big fan of putting topical adrenaline in uh, elderly bleeding patients because very often patients with epistaxis have comorbidities. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. Um, Epistaxis is a local manifestation of a, a vascular abnormality. Um, so adrenaline in a bleeding patient who's maybe been bleeding for some time before they get to A&E might not be the cleverest thing. Okay, to there could be enough absorption from the yeah, nose to you, cause you, systemic... The last thing you want is to start having an arrhythmia or something like that. Okay. And, yeah. So let's say that that controls the bleeding, but it's still oozing a little bit, and we yeah. f- we figure we should maybe cauterize this. Yeah. Any tips on on cauterization? We probably have silver nitrate. I'm sure that yeah. is that would that yeah. be the common. So silver nitrate is still the the standard, uh, most commonly available uh, form of cautery. Now there's a few problems I have with silver nitrate, and we see it in our trainees. Um, so the first thing is that silver nitrate is usually applied on a sort of matchstick-type applicator. It looks like a big, long matchstick. Silver nitrate really only works if the bleeding is already slowed, and, and, and that's you know what you would normally expect after the vasoconstrictor has been applied. 
cofenocaine is a mixture of vasoconstrictor and lignocaine, so that's quite useful to put on your cotton wool ball because not only do you get the vasoconstriction, you also get some anaesthetic for your soon-to-come silver nitrate, which is quite uncomfortable. If they're bleeding a lot, then silver nitrate's not going to do the job. And if, if they're bleeding and you can see where it's bleeding from and you start trying to paint it with silver nitrate, you're probably not going to get anywhere. Maybe some of your listeners who've tried this will remember uh, the grey slime going all over the place uh, as they try and put the silver nitrate on. It doesn't work in that situation. So you've got to slow the bleeding with the vasoconstrictor. And then it's very important that you put the silver nitrate right on top of the bleeding point and slightly around it, a sort of a penumbra around the bleeding vessel. And the important thing after that is to use a dry piece of cotton wool to press on top of the area. And that forces the silver nitrate into the mucosa and completes the chemical burn. So the way I teach my juniors to do this is the silver nitrate applicator has a matchstick head of silver nitrate on it. Well, the other end of it, I get them to wrap cotton wool tightly to form a sort of a cotton bud on the other end of it. And the idea is you go in with your your head torch or whatever, you see the bleeding point, you stick the silver nitrate right on top of it, and then you immediately twist the stick round so that the cotton wool side is pressed on top of it. If you do that, you will press the silver nitrate into the mucosa, and when you look in, not only is the bleeding stopped, you have this lovely black dot of uh, effective cautery. It goes black. If you don't do that, you end up with a horrible snail track of grey uh, slime running all over the patient's septum, causing uh, further burn and damage. And even can, I've seen people with staining on their upper lip and so on from badly applied silver nitrate. The one thing I would try and get across to people, and this is not accident emergency staff, this is junior ENT surgeons as well, is if you can't see the bleeding point, silver nitrate's not going to do. So there's some concept that some people have that you just do two coats of silver nitrate <laughs> liberally over the Just septum. randomly, just all uh, over the little you know, area. If you're not seeing the bleeding point, you're not going to affect, you're not doing anything. In fact, you're harming the patient. Okay. So... So if you see the bleeding point, silver nitrate in the way that I've suggested will we'll do the job. And how long do you apply it for typically? Uh, oh, it's, 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 it's instantaneous. It's, uh, you know, you know it's, it's a couple of seconds pushing it on uh, okay. with quite firm pressure. And then cotton wool, the other end of the matchstick, okay. press against it for another few seconds. And, it, and it's pretty instantaneous. So direct on the little bleeding point and then a little just, circle a little around, around it? it. Yeah. Just a little bit. A little around And it, then yeah. cotton wool straight yeah. on top of that. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Does that change at all in warfarinized patients? I've heard some people have had a thought yeah. that maybe silver nitrate's not as effective or can promote bleeding yeah. in warfarinized patients. Any differences there? Epistaxis, it's worth bearing in mind there are essentially two types, what I have called primary epistaxis and secondary epistaxis. The primary epistaxis is epistaxis which occurs spontaneously in people who have no obvious cause for it. This is the type of epistaxis that we see quite a lot, patients sitting at home watching TV, next minute they have a nosebleed. They're not on an anticoagulant, they don't have a blood dyscrasia, they're not uh, taking any medication that would cause it, they've not had any trauma. The other type of epistaxis is secondary epistaxis, and this is actually quite common now. This is a situation where a patient has a nosebleed, but their nosebleed is a symptom of the fact that their INR is through the roof because their, their warfarin is out of control, 
or they're on clopidogel or uh, one of the other antiplatelet agents, or they've got some other illness which has resulted in them being thrombocytopenic or whatever. It's very important to establish right off from the start which one you're dealing with, because if it's secondary epistaxis, the treatment of the secondary factor is super important. You're right, you might want to try silver nitrate on someone who's in warfarin, but if their INR is 4, you're not going to get any benefit from the, 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 the silver nitrate. You need to correct their INR. So that's the important, the important distinction. It's worth trying if you can see a bleeding point, because even in someone who's warfarinized, if you can see the bleeding point and you can cauterize it the way we've described, there's a chance you'll get a result. But if you don't, you need to deal with the underlying secondary factors. So we we think the, the bleeding is a little bit too heavy. Mm-hmm. We can see it, but a little bit too heavy for silver nitrate. So our next option, I presumably, is some form of tampon or... or um, yeah. do, do you have any strong preferences about what device or tampon to use? Well, I put my hands up and say that I have very strong feelings about these. And, and I, I've, as I say, I did my, my MD thesis on this and I've actually lectured all over the world on the subject of epistaxis and I have a hatred of tampons and balloons and <laughs> catheters and things because they to me do not do anything to stop the bleeding but they very often will hide the bleeding. However I'm in an ivory tower you're in an accident emergency and you've got a bleeding patient and it's not stopping you need to do something. Uh, if you have to put something into the nose that you put in um, a, a Mericel foam tampon and that you put it in gently. And this is the important bit about using these tampons. We often see patients who have been referred with an epistaxis and they've got a tampon in their nose and we remove the tampon to find the bleeding point and find that the bleeding point is very anterior and very easily found but they're now bleeding from the macerated mucosa that's caused by somebody ramming a tampon into their nose. So I'm not having a go here, but you have to be super careful how you Any put them tips in. on being careful? Yeah. Well, what, what would you do? See, so, see, well, you yeah. probably wouldn't put one in. Could, can I maybe step back a bit? If, mm. if we got to the point that we've described and you didn't want to put one in, what mm. would, would you have a different choice or a different step that you would mm. do other than the tampon? Yeah. Being in A&E and maybe having to transfer to yeah. another hospital potentially. Is that still maybe our only option? Yeah, no, I think, again, it comes back to the, the level of, of epistaxis that you're dealing with. As you know, this is a spectrum from, from a bit of a trickle onto the upper lip and drip, drip, drip through to hosing out. I think if someone is having a major bleed, then you have to do something to, to pack the nose or to tamp and add it. Um, however, if you've got a patient who's maybe on warfarin, maybe thrombocytopenic, maybe on aspirin, maybe on clopidogel, and they're having a drip, drip, drip type of bleed, then perhaps rather than put in a tampon, which could cause more damage and end up giving you more bleeding points that are not going to, you know, not going to clot because of their secondary factors. Um, recently, we've been using a, a, um, a thrombin gelatin foam. There's things like Flowseal, um, which is a, uh, thrombin in a, in, a, in a foam and it goes in in a syringe uh, and um, it's like shaving foam when you make it up uh, so it's very gentle, it's not a, it's not a pack it's a, you, you mix two vials together in a syringe until you get this shaving foam consistency and then you just squirt that into their nostril so if I had someone with um, a secondary bleed 
as we've discussed, who wasn't bleeding to death but wasn't stopping. Rather than putting a tampon, I think you'd be better putting something like that in. Now, we may not have that, so mm. we'll go back to our particular case. We don't have that, but we have tampons in our yeah. department. So just just in terms of putting one in gently, what, what are the main things to think about in terms of doing okay. that? So this is where your listener has to start visualising things, okay? So this is now visual-spatial stuff <laughs> we're doing. Um, so the most important thing about putting anything in a nose is that you never put anything up a nose, Okay, and that might sound very basic, and I'm sure all your listeners know that. But we often see people who have had things shoved up their nose. You put a tampon in along the nose, along the floor of the nose. You've got to imagine that you're putting it in parallel with the upper surface of the hard palate. That way, you'll cause less damage, you'll cause less pain, and you'll be able to put the tampon in properly. We often see patients who are... Uh, who've had a tampon or a balloon or one of these other things put in their nose and about 60% of it is hanging out because they couldn't get it in any further. And they say, well, the patient wasn't tolerating it. Well, the reason the patient wasn't tolerating it is because they were trying to shove it up the nose. So going back to the anatomy book and looking at a cross-section of the nasal cavity, um, it's not like um, the Clyde Tunnel with uh, north and southbound uh, tunnels. It's a series of narrow grooves uh, and uh, your best chance of putting in a tampon is going along the floor of the nose. So you insert it horizontally. And in terms of anaesthetic, it looks an uncomfortable thing. I've never done one that didn't look mm. marginally uncomfortable, mm. but I've generally done it the way you describe. And what would you generally do for anaesthetic? Well, again, um, cofenocaine, which is the, the combination of uh, lignocaine and uh, ephedrine, pseudoephedrine. So you get your vasoconstrictor. Vasoconstrictor does a number of things. Not only does it maybe slow the bleeding, but it shrinks the nasal mucosa, so it makes the passageway wider for your um, tampon to go in. So cofenocaine, I think you have that in A&E. It comes in a blue box. Have you? We sometimes yeah, have yeah. that in A&E, let's say. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, you've told me you don't have flow seal, you don't have cofenocaine. Well, my response to that would be get it. Get it, okay. <laughs> it's not... Uh, and how long would you give it to work, generally? A, I, again, seconds. It's pretty, I, I, I'm pretty liberal with it. It comes with a, a spray applicator, a couple of, you know, depressions of the, the applicator, get the patient to sniff it back and then, then crack on. Would you coat the tampon no. in anything? Some people talk about antibiotics and no. coating it. No. No. If you start to coat the tampon, the tampon's going to inflate and then you're going to have difficulty getting it in. The tampon goes in in its compressed uh, state and once it's in and it's soaking with blood, it, 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 it swells expands. up and expands. Hence, hence so put it, it in so, dry more so put less. it in dry you can't really you know by the time you've inflated it you're then trying to push this uh, floppy thing into a tight nose it's not going to happen and would you have a strong preference between a tampon and the inflatable varieties if I'm not going to give out the yeah no I, I, I so one of the earliest papers I did I did in this hospital in, in the morgue and we looked at uh, balloons and I had a problem. I couldn't understand how a balloon could tamponade. So trying to make an analogy here, if you can imagine a cardboard uh, tube from the inside of a toilet roll, yeah? yeah, an empty toilet roll tube, if you put a balloon into that and blew it up, you would never burst the cardboard tube. The balloon just expands out the front and out the back. 
So the concept that you put a balloon in and blow it up in someone's nose and it's going to fill all the space is flawed. And exactly, that's exactly what happens when you inflate a balloon in someone's nose, it inflates into the nasopharynx posteriorly and into the soft tissues anteriorly. It does not inflate inside the cavity. Um, so balloons, forget it. I wouldn't bother using them. So this is why I think um, these balloons and various things are, are flawed. So let's say this particular patient, we didn't even have to go to the mm. tampon phase. Say we cauterized, that seemed to be successful. We've observed them for a short period of time, seems to have settled. What would be your general discharge advice for people like that? So again, is it a primary or a secondary epistaxis? It's a second, say prim- prim- say primary, primary in this case. So there's no comorbidity, there's no aspirin on board, anything like that. You've cauterized it. I would normally give them something like... Uh, chlorhexidine neomycin cream um, I don't know, I get allowed to say brand names but Naseptin is, is the one that we use um, because you give them a burn they will get a, a, they will get an infection in the mucosa there so you get them to use Naseptin two or three times a day for the next week or two um, and that should, should help settle things down um, and if it's their first ever nosebleed and there's, there's, there's no other factors then probably don't need any follow up now, we sometimes get patients who maybe have a week or two of recurrent small bleeds, mm-hmm. but they stop by the time they come to A&E. Yep. And you're left thinking, well, what do I do? You know, clearly I don't need to refer this to ENT at this stage. But is some people have said Naseptin in those situations. Does Naseptin sometimes help with those recurrent bleeders? Or Yes. Well, so again, this is... Uh I, I wrote, I wrote um, a number of chapters on this, but I wrote a chapter in our main, our main textbook called Scott Brown, and I, I came up with a, a, a categorization of epistaxis. And, um, so there was uh, childhood and adult, and there was primary and secondary, and there was acute severe, and there was recurrent. Recurrent epistaxis, which what you're describing, is, uh, is an interesting uh, an interesting relationship between the frequency of nosebleeds and the severity. So the more frequent the nosebleed, the less severe they are. People who have the severe nosebleed that end up in an ENT ward and end up going to theatre for, for arterial ligations usually have one nosebleed that puts them in hospital. The person who has repeated nosebleeds, recurrent epistaxis, they tend to be minor nuisance-type bleeds. So in these patients, again, you've got to rule out secondary factors. Is there something else that's causing this? Um, but if they're having minor bleeds, they're not bleeding when they're with you, then I think use of naseptin uh, or something like that is is a good idea. The only evidence that we have for that comes from the paediatric population. Uh, recurrent epistaxis is very common in the paediatric population, and it's been shown that uh, chlorhexidine, neomycin, cream uh, in children um, is, is better than placebo in reducing the frequency and severity of recurrent epistaxis. There isn't any good evidence in the adult population yet, but one would like to think it's similar. Okay, so let's maybe have a wee quick chat about posterior nosebleeds. And and maybe this is a lucky thing. I don't know that I've actually dealt with one or one of the bad ones that you often hear about, thankfully. what would be the differences? What, what what would you recommend if you saw someone with a nosebleed? Obviously, you know, a lot of bleeding from the oropharynx, coughing up a lot of blood, couldn't see anything anteriorly. What, what would your steps or approaches be generally? 
So I think the first thing is to maybe try and ditch this concept of posterior nosebleed. I think this is another urban myth. Um, now this came from the concept that uh, uh, young adults and children bled from Little's area, but adults bled from way at the back of their nose. We now know from uh, studies which we've published that um, even adults, most of them bleed from the anterior part of the nasal septum. What you probably mean by a posterior bleed is a good going bleed, is someone who's bleeding big time. And uh, you say you haven't seen one of these, but there'll be listeners who have seen them. And, and, and if you've seen them, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The patient's spitting out blood, there's blood coming out both nostrils, they're coughing up blood that's aerosolizing over all the people around them. If you get them to pinch their nostrils, they bleed out their lacrimal duct and it comes out through their medial canthus. A proper bleed is quite quite an alarming thing to deal with. If you're in that situation, then you're on your full-on resuscitation. Um, you've got to make sure you get access, that you've got... Uh, group and save at least, that you've uh, made sure there are no other secondary factors that you should be correcting. Um, if they're thrombocytopenic or whatever, you need to get on to hematology for that. If they're on an anticoagulant, you need to look at reversing it, it depending on the reasons that they're on it. You need to make sure you don't do things that are going to spoil metal heart valves and so on and kill patients. But you then, I think, are looking at possibly putting in tampons and transferring the patient as soon as you, you possibly can. Have you ever commonly had to come across this concept of Foley catheters down the nose and, and like trying to more tamponade slightly posteriorly, yes. or is that still very uncommon? It is extremely uncommon and it should be very uncommon as well. So the, 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 the principle of putting a, a, a urinary catheter along the floor of the nose is not so much to tamponade it, but the idea is if you block the posterior nasal aperture, the coena, with the balloon, and pull it forward, that the blood can't go down the back. So then you have to put a pack in front of it so the blood can't come out the front. And if there's nowhere for the blood to go, eventually you will be indirectly tamping, tamponading the, the, the bleeding. There are undoubtedly situations that will arise that people will need to do that. And I'm thinking about you're in an accident in the emergency department, you've got someone hosing blood out of both nostrils, you know, they're, they're distressed, you can't stop it, then perhaps you might want to try that. But the balloon, the Foley uh, catheter in the nasopharynx is not going to stop it on its own. You're going to then have to put something in front of that. And in the past, we used to use um, uh, ribbon gauze packing. That's now a, a lost art, I'm afraid. Uh, that uh, It almost uh, seemed like a very complicated art. It's, it's, it's a complicated art. It was something that junior ENT surgeons learned in theatre uh, following nasal surgery. We would pack noses and you, you got, got the hang of it then. We don't pack noses for, following nasal surgery anymore, so most of my, my trainees, even senior ones, uh, don't know how to pack a nose properly. So I think you'd be looking at maybe um, tampons again in the front, and a foley in the back, um, but really your, your your best advantage in that situation, or your biggest advantage would be to get a blue light ambulance and get them to the ENT department as, as soon as. So many thanks to Jerry McGarry. I think my main take home points today are, number one, um, we may be increasingly uh, treating CSF leaks through a transnasal endoscopic approach. Um, so if you have an endoscopic ENT surgeon available, they may be the correct choice uh, to refer CSF leaks to. 
Number two, when applying silver nitrate, remember to uh, press a little bit of cotton wool against the cauterized mucosa after you've applied the silver nitrate, and this forces the silver nitrate into the mucosa and completes the burn. Number three, one consideration for secondary bleeds that are still trickling instead of a tampon is a thrombin gelatin foam, such as Flocil. So these may be an option to discuss with your ENT surgeons locally and might be a consideration for your practice. And finally, number four, posterior nosebleeds are probably even rarer than we once thought. Uh, I think Jerry would describe what we consider posterior nosebleeds as probably often just very heavy anterior bleeds that we just can't see. Um, and urinary catheters are seldom required, but if they are, they're predominantly there to prevent blood flowing into the nasal and oral pharynx, and you will require an anterior tampon concurrently to stem the bleeding. So many thanks to you for listening and many thanks to Jerry McGarry for his time. You will hear more of Jerry in two weeks' time when episode two is released. And then a fortnight after that we'll release episode three. Lots more good stuff to come. In the meantime, you can check out our website at samungos-ed.com where there's lots of additional resources for your enjoyment. And please feel free to leave a comment on our show notes where we put some links with some summaries of the learning points today. Any thanks for listening again and take care.